This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome back to Books and Nachos. This is Brock, and today I will be reviewing Ian Fleming's novel On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This is the 10th James Bond novel written by Ian Fleming, originally published in 1963. This was the first James Bond novel to be written while the movie franchise was underway, as Fleming was writing the book in his Jamaican estate, Goldeneye, as Eon began production on Dr. No. The movie version of this book, released in 1969, had gained more respect in the years since its release, and while doing research for our discussion as part of our 25-episode now-playing podcast James Bond movie retrospective series, which you can find over at nowplayingpodcast.com, I read that the film's director, Peter Hunt, aimed to keep the movie as close to the book as possible, and now that I have read the book, I can say he succeeded. This book reads much like the movie of the same name. Some things are different, which is to be expected, but the similarities are too great to go into or deny. The book starts much like the movie does. Bond, watching the beach, intrigued by Tracy as she approaches the water to commit suicide. Bond moves in as do the thugs, but unlike the movie, Bond is overpowered, and Bond and Tracy are taken in a boat by the thugs to a place unbeknownst to us at this time, and then we get what I am seeing is a classic Fleming move, and Aaron Sorkins seems to have borrowed this. We get a flashback of 24 hours prior and see how Bond first became interested and involved in Tracy, leading us up to where we find him at the beginning of the book. Bond sees Tracy for the first time, and that is how it all begins. Later that night, Bond goes into the casino and has a good night. Tracy drops a fortune, and Bond gentlemanly covers the difference. They spend the night together. And then, chronologically speaking, the beach scene takes place, and those men, those thugs work for Tracy's father, Draco, the mafia boss. Now, all of these elements are in the first 30 minutes of the movie, as you no doubt picked up by now if you are familiar. It's just in slightly different order and less action scenes. The story in both places work, but as an adaptation, the movie does a great job of telling the same story and including the needed plot elements while showing us more action and truncating the whole thing down. Like when Bond is taken to Draco by the thugs, we get a cool fight at the door that ends with Bond tossing the knife. Here in the book, we get the knife toss, a nice conversation setting up the plot with the two gentlemen in the office, but no fight scene. It is in this meeting where Mark Gaines Draco offers the dowry to Bond if he marries Tracy, and Bond requests a lead on Blofeld using the man's connections. Through Draco, Bond learns that Blofeld is pursuing a nobleman's title, and Bond is able to assume the identity of Sir Hilary Bray, genealogist, to meet Blofeld in person to determine if it's really him or not. Once there in the compound, we learn that Blofeld is using hypnosis to cure a group of English girls of their allergies. But unlike the film, Bond needs to escape the clinic before he finds out the real plan, what Blofeld is really up to, and we are subjected to Bond, M, and other MI6 folks figuring it all out from deduction and a lot of talking, which very well may be more realistic, but really makes little sense from a potboiler thriller point of view. Fleming all but kills the momentum of the story, taking this breather to have a lot of men sitting around theorizing. We actually read that Bond and M wait as the men read Bond's report. After they feel confident they know what Blofeld is up to, Bond uses Draco's men to go back to the Alps to get Blofeld. Bond chases Blofeld down the bobsled run. Blofeld escapes. 
MI6 stops the girls from implementing Blofeld's plan, and Bond flies to Germany to marry Tracy at the end. So there is a lot of familiarity here in the story of the book and the movie. There is one great scene here that isn't in the movie, which is the catalyst for Bond's sudden departure from the compound in the Alps. Another MI6 agent is found snooping around and is brought to Blofeld for questioning. This agent recognizes Bond and calls him James right there in the room, asks Bond for a hand to get him out of this mess. But since Bond is undercover, he can't break his character. An incredibly thrilling scene with great intensity of a man literally begging James Bond for his life. After the experience and Blofeld flat out asking Bond, as Sir Hillary, if he is connected to the British Secret Service... Bond knows he has to leave, and Bond goes into figuring out all the likely scenarios for when they'd come to get him. It's great stuff to read as he goes through these options, preparing his escape, including writing the names of the girls in the clinic he got from seducing one of the girls, Ruby, but instead of writing it down on a piece of paper with ink, Bond uses his urine. So if he is killed or captured, making the escape, they wouldn't find that information on him easily. Now, I don't envy the guy back at MI6 who has to decrypt that code, if you know what I mean. And who knows, Bond may have excellent penmanship. Regardless, Bond's spy work here is page-turning stuff. Bond's escape is the most thrilling scene in the book. As we get the avalanche here, Bond is alone, unlike in the movie when Tracy is with him. And in the book, it's at night, and Bond is scared. He does run into Tracy at the bottom of the hill, and when she does find him, Bond is hurt, spent, and without her help, he would have likely have died. Tracy saves his life, and as a result, he realizes his need for her and desire to be with her forever, and proposes. Fleming's writing throughout is in top form. I have complimented him before on his ability to paint an amazing picture, and here it is no different. The characters seem more fleshed out. I am following what's going on, and Fleming does seem to be in control of this story from the get-go. James Bond is really the star of this book, and yes, I know that sounds stupid because this is a James Bond novel after all, but it's true in that the character really is center stage here practically a character study of James Bond. It is us following Bond through this plot, and he is what really matters here. Not the villains, not the henchmen, not anything else. It is really a book about the character of James Bond and how he grows, progresses as a person. There is a distinct emotional side to the Bond character that I don't typically get to see in most of the movies. An emotional side I have spoken about in my previous book reviews here of Books and Nachos. The character is clearly affected by the experiences in this book, including Tracy, and that helps provide plausibility and emotional heft to the well-known ending of this novel. At the start of the book, Bond is preoccupied with drafting his resignation letter. He has not been given double O work in the past year since the Thunderball mission, and he feels his talents are being wasted on smaller tasks he feels beneath him. His frustration here for not getting this mystery solved about Blofeld is in sharp contrast to where Bond is at the end of the book, as Blofeld again has gotten away, but Bond is not obsessed with finding him. Rather, he goes to Germany to be married. His priorities have changed. We get some rare insights about Bond's past in this novel, and the first and only time I can recall it happening in these books that I have read so far is in the short story From a View to a Kill. In this one novel, we read Bond's recollection of his own childhood, about his parents' birthplaces, how he recollects about skiing as a teenager, and how he visits Vesperlin's grave once a year, still carrying a torch for Vesper, also showing his need and desire, albeit buried 
to love again. When he starts to collaborate with the genealogy guy, we learn the fun tidbit that the Bond family motto is, the world is not enough. We learn of the Scottish background on his father's side. No doubt a nod to Connery, who was playing Bond in the movies at this time. And most impressively, and actually odd, given what I know of the character, very late in the book, when Bond turns down the dowry that Mark Ainge Draco promised him if he marries Tracy, we get to learn of Bond's philosophy on money, which also informs us of the man's character. He won't take the money from Draco, even for future kids or to make Tracy more comfortable in the life she's used to living, because Bond insists that money isn't needed to live a full life, that he has never had it and doesn't need it, that he loves to gamble because it's found money. Now, given the fine tastes of the character in the movies and in the books that I've read so far, while I certainly respect this idea of what money can and cannot buy, it seems completely out of character for what I'm used to of James Bond. The man seems to enjoy having money at his disposal, fine hotels, dining, etc. But given when it does come in the book, what it does do is inform us that Bond is going into this marriage with the best intentions and seemingly for all the right reasons. In the last book, Thunderball, I mentioned that it seems like Bond really did fall for Domino. And I think that experience, being a year in the past when this book started, might have been the spark that made Bond realize he's ready to love again. And if you think about how this book is the middle book in the Blofeld trilogy, that relationship with Domino certainly can be seen as informing this character for where he goes emotionally in this book. We see a more introspective and a maturing individual. But he's still a spy, and he sleeps with Ruby, one of the girls at the clinic, to get the information he needs. But as he is betting the girl to get the information, when she asks him if he loves her even a little bit, his initial reaction is, oh, this stinking question, which is such a difference where he goes soon after when he proposes to Tracy. We definitely see the difference between the job and his true feelings. The movie version does a better job of showing us how Bond and Tracy fall in love, where here Bond seems more smitten, and after the escape from death, realizes his feelings for Tracy are real. The movie also does a better job with the character of Tracy, and this book gives you even more appreciation for what Diana Rigg brought to the character. When we first meet her in the flashback at the beginning of the novel, Tracy is in need of direction, of help, and Bond's heart goes out to her as he is smitten with her immediately. Intrigued by this woman who would drop so much in the casino, knowing she can't pay, sleeping with Bond that same night, and then trying to get him to scram. And she and Bond, fond of each other, go their separate ways as Bond goes on the mission to Bolfeld's compound. When she and Bond are reunited, when she saves Bond's life, she is quite capable and strong and shows us her real character, shows us how Bond has settled her down. She no longer seems suicidal. And I do love this motivator for Bond to propose to Tracy. Fleming uses the avalanche as Bond's realization that he needs this woman forever. Bond can tell the difference in himself after surviving the incident and that this woman, of all women, was there to help him, and he feels a connection with her. But I can't shake that after experiencing the ordeal he was in, to propose when he did, it reads impetuously. Did he have enough time to take proper stock before taking that leap? As written for the rest of the novel, the answer is yes. As written, he sincerely loves Tracy, or at least he thinks he does, and she him. And once Bond proposes, you get a real sense that she has settled down, that Bond is Tracy's salvation. We get a solid example where the marriage will go when Bond returns from the raid on the estate after the bobsled chase, all cut up, and Tracy gives him a talking to on how he didn't consider anyone but himself going off and getting hurt like that going after Blofeld. He didn't think about how worried she'd be if he goes. 
He only thought of his unfinished business, and Bon admits to that. And after admitting to that, Tracy then tells him, you know, don't change. That she wants him and not a different man, so she'll live with it. That she is marrying a man like her father in many aspects. So in the course of one paragraph, Tracy's angry as heck at Bond, and then suddenly reverses, realizing, you know what, I'm going to marry this man, it's the man I want to marry. And that sudden reversal I took is a sign of immature love. So while this is supposed to be one of the great loves of James Bond's life, how interesting would it be if Bond and she are married for a couple of years? How long would this honeymoon last? I couldn't help but think of that, given the characterizations of both of them. But look, I may admittedly be reading too much into this. And given the ending of this book, does it really matter? Probably not. The other big character in this book, of course, is Blofeld. And the moments we get of Blofeld do little to advance the character for me as a real nefarious villain. While he does have this master plan to ruin the agriculture of Britain, as I mentioned earlier, we don't get the gloating scene between Bond and Blofeld. We don't get him spelling out his plan for everyone. We don't get a real sense of why this genealogy is all that important to Blofeld other than a title. And that really bothered me. And that very well may be all it is. But if that is the case... It exemplifies the humdrum way of portraying this character in this book. This man is hiding and hatching such an intricate plan. Would he risk all of that just for the possibility of a birthright title that he may not even be eligible to, that he eventually tries to bribe his way into? This is a man in the last book was able to lead an organization that stole nuclear missiles, that was able to attempt to hold the world at ransom. In this book, he has hatched a plot to destroy the agriculture of the UK by using hypnosis. He has gone through a physical transformation to hide himself. So this need for a title to give his real name to the College of Arms to get a title is just not well explained in this book. And to me, it just stands out as a means for Bond to get into the clinic to get close to Blofeld. Now, it's entirely possible I'm understanding the need of powerful people to have titles bestowed upon them. But look, the author is not explaining it all that well enough for me for its importance to come through. With all the plot and character work going on in this book, there are a few small things that deserve mentioning. A lot is made about the abundant and sometimes inappropriate product placement in the Bond movie franchise. Well, here in this novel, there's some of that too, from vodka to toothpaste brands being dropped as if Fleming is getting paid to do so. Another nice brief surprise in this book was reading of Bond's new loyal secretary, Mary Goodnight. Not the same character we see in the Man with the Golden Gun movie. And Ursula Andress was name-dropped. A celebrity sighting in the book. Again, this book was being written as Dr. No was filming. I do have to call myself out on something. When Bond was talking to Tracy on the phone before he goes back to the Swiss Alps to get Blofeld in the compound, he tells Tracy he has a ham sandwich for dinner. Now, during my review of For Your Eyes Only, I called into question why a man like James Bond would eat such a pedestrian sandwich. Perhaps he was doing it for the character he was playing, the hunter in the woods, etc. Well, I guess I stand corrected. Ian Fleming's James Bond enjoys a hearty, tasty ham sandwich. The final chapter of the book is, of course, the chapter I was most curious about going into the novel, and as the novel progresses, the one I was looking forward to the most. Knowing the resolution doesn't make it any less powerful. The last chapter's name? All the time in the world. Now, a few minutes ago, I did say that the decision to get married by both these characters seemed a bit impetuous. But because of the character arc of James Bond in this book, the love story does really work. I like the details here. M is Bond's best man. Nice! They get married in a freezing cold, but they still insist on driving away in a convertible with the top down. And there is this drop line at the council general, who marries Bond and Tracy, that he tells Bond a reporter came by to ask questions about the time of the ceremony. 
And I loved that hint, foreshadowing that people who don't know the movie probably would not have picked up on. So after they leave the church in their convertible, they stop to fill up for gas. Bond notices a red Maserati, thinks nothing of it, but eventually this car barrels along behind them and finally catches up to their car. I want to read you this passage directly from the book. Ten minutes later, Tracy said, There's a red car coming up fast behind. Do you want me to lose him? No, says Bond. Let him go. We've got all the time in the world. Now he could hear the rasping whine of the eight cylinders. He leaned over to the left and jerked a laconic thumb forwards, waving the Maserati past. The whine changed to a shattering roar. The windscreen of the Lancia disappeared as if hit by a monster fist. Bond caught a glimpse of the taut, snarling mouth under the syphilitic nose, flash eliminator of some automatic gun being withdrawn, and then the red car was passed, and the Lancia was going like hell off the verge across a stretch of snow and smashing a path through a young copse. Then Bond's head crashed into the windscreen frame, and he was out. When he came to, a man in a khaki uniform of the Autobahn Patrol was shaking him. The young face was stark with horror. Was East Den Gishkokin? Was East Den Gishkokin? Bond turns towards Tracy. She was lying forward with her face buried in the ruins of the steering wheel. Her pink handkerchief had come off, and the bell of golden hair hung down and hid her face. Bond put his arm around her shoulders, across which the dark patches had begun to flower. He pressed her against him. He looked up at the young man and smiled his reassurance. It's all right, he said in a clear voice, as if explaining something to a child. It's quite all right. She's having a rest. We'll be going on soon. There's no hurry. You see, Bond's head sank down against hers, and he whispered into her hair. You see, we've got all the time in the world. The young patrolman took a last scared look at the motionless couple, hurried over to his motorcycle, picked up his hand microphone, and began talking urgently to the rescue headquarters. Again, incredible descriptions by Fleming here. I could see in my head, clear as day, Bond's head smashing into the frame, see Tracy hung over the steering wheel, and such a heartbreaking ending and such a tender moment. And I'm so happy Fleming didn't flat out say, and Tracy is dead. His descriptions here of the dark patches had begun to flower is a beautiful description for such a sad event. Now again, this is very similar to the end of the movie, but top credit has to go to Fleming, not only for his incredible descriptions, but for setting up this ending so powerfully. I think this ending plays extremely well as the sum of the parts of this novel leading up to that one remarkable event. Needless to say, at this point, I recommend you read the novel of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's an incredible read, and one that, while we see the movie is quite faithful to this source material, there are plenty of differences that make this telling of the adventure worth experiencing. I didn't go much into Fleming's writing here, because I really wanted to focus on the characterization of Bond and talk a little bit about the similarity to the story in the movie. Yes, he's verbose in times, and he slows down the pace for no reason in the sections I mentioned, but the man has a flair for gripping you with his descriptions of the environments and of the action sequences. But this book is not just a James Bond action thriller. It's a love story. And while I never minded the talking in the scenes with Tracy and Bond and the scenes with Draco and Bond, I could use a little less of the James Bond and M in an office sitting with men figuring things out stuff. And after reading this book, I look forward to seeing where Fleming will take the character of Bond in the next adventure, the last book in the Blofeld trilogy titled You Only Live Twice. I wonder how hell-bent for revenge Bond is going to be. We'll find out when I review that book in the coming weeks. 
Thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes and come over to the forums to discuss your thoughts on this review and this novel. We'd love to have you join in the conversation. We'll be back next week with another James Bond book review. Books and Nachos will return. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.